Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the MedTech Impact Podcast, where you get to hear from leaders and innovators who are shaping the future of medical technology. I'm Kyle Cruz. And I'm Richard Mikuljan. And we're your hosts of the show. So today on the MedTech Impact Podcast, we are delighted to be joined by Siva Nataraja, president and co-founder of Jogo Health. Siva, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Kyle. Thanks for inviting me. It's fantastic to be with you both of you <laughs> well it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show you were part of uh, impact cohort yes. six which wasn't too long ago uh, and of course as always when we start these conversations we love to share the problem for the audience so please tell us what is the big problem that jogo health is looking mm -hmm. to solve yeah thank you um so we are solving a particular problem in pain and neuromuscular conditions so if you really look at it, um, there was a well-established science called electromyography biofeedback that was developed in the 1970s by uh, a famous physician named Dr. Brodney out of NYU. And that has shown to really work very well for patients who do not properly recover uh, from stroke, um, incontinence, pelvic floor, um, and things like chronic lower back pain, migraine, and this has been very effective in treating all these conditions, but this technology never took off. So the problem we are solving, basically bringing this fantastic tech that was sitting in these labs of academic and medical centers into the hands of patients at home. So you could actually use Jago at home. So some science that's already been approved by FDA, gone through clinical studies a lot, but not in practice. And we are solving that problem of bringing this new techno the technology the, the, the treatment that existed before, but could not be commercialized or democratized because of the complexities of technology. So we kind of bringing it to the market through this. And it's been, it's been uh, basically solving very, very important clinical problems too. things like patients who do not recover from stroke mm -hmm. with uh, dystonia of the hands or spasticity of the hands. We have physical therapy cannot really fix that. And even incontinence, we go through pelvic floor rehabilitation but that can only get you to some extent, but you still need targeted uh, rehab, which this uh, this device can do, and things like migraine and even chronic low back pain. Um, so these are some of the things that uh, we are solving in terms of clinically, but broadly, we are bringing this technology, which was existing in these academic medical centers into the hands of patients, yeah. But those ailments, those are some big health problems you're talking about, and particularly if you wanna just focus in on something like stroke for a second, you know, the incidence rate, but obviously as well, just the lack of recovery from the current standard of care. I think that's something you highlight when you're talking about this technology. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So yeah, every 40 seconds, someone has a stroke in the United States. So around 740,000 people have stroke in the United States. About one seventh of them or one tenth of them just walk out of the hospital as if nothing happened, right? Because they recover by themselves with the process of neuroplasticity. Then uh, there is another one-tenth of those patients who have complete disability where they lose cognition and they go in coma and other things. But there is a whole bunch of patients, a huge number of patients who do not fully recover from physical therapy. Physical therapy is a standard of care right now for post-stroke rehabilitation. And they, the current treatment, basically, if you can 
get your daily daily uh, living activities, then you're out of the hospital, right? Then you go home, you still cannot hold a cup like this, you know, in front of my <laughs> face. Uh, you cannot open a water bottle, you can't open a door, you can't drive. These functions are all, and cannot walk in some cases. So that's where Jago comes in for stroke rehabilitation post physical therapy, where patients aren't fully recovered. So that's a big area for us to focus on. Yeah, for stroke. And Cal, we were just speaking about this before we started, you know, how, you know, all these health conditions we have a personal relationship to because they're just such significant problems. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, very near and dear to our heart. And as Siva, you mentioned, there's a number of problems, you know, but I think it's fascinating that here you are kind of focusing on, it sounds like stroke maybe at the moment, but with the opportunity to provide treatment and therapy to, you know, uh, other diseases and illnesses. So I guess, tell us more about your solution. We see it right there in the background, I think, of your uh, screen. Um, so go ahead and tell us more about the solution and your, your device and technology and how it's helping patients. Sure, sure, Kyle. So if you notice in my background, you see a variable sensor, right? That's That sensor is called electromyography sensor, EMG. It's a surface electromyography sensor. It picks up the electricity from your muscles. It doesn't send electricity into your body. People mistake that, hey, is it a tension? It's sending electricity into your body. It's not. It's actually reading the electricity from your body, which is myography. So you have EKG, which is which is reading the electricity generated by your, by your heart. EMG reads the electricity generated by your muscles. Every muscle generates generate electricity. We read that small piece of electricity and we, through Bluetooth, connect that to this app that's sitting on this tablet PC that you see. And we manipulate that, that electromyography says, uh, sensing that's coming out of it. And we feed it back to the brain visually. So think of someone who had stroke, right? So the body actually generates electricity in your hand that's not currently functioning, but your brain basically has lost that connection between the between the brain and the muscle that whole circuitry is lost that's why you're not able to move your arm and that part of the brain which controls your uh, arm is now dysfunctional but your brain has brain is plastic you could actually rewire your brain right so you feed it back to the brain the electricity through visually not through any other means just visually and you give exercises to the brain to basically recover this hand there are protocols that's what we have the paths for and you set targets for the brain to reach. And after eight weeks, the brain basically rewires itself it's through the process of neural plasticity. And that's what happens even when you do exercise, but in exercise, you're not really feeding back to the brain. Here you're targeting the muscles and feeding back to the brain and the brain recovers. And you could actually see that in fMRI studies, if you take a scan of the brain before and after, you could actually see the brain changing. And it's very, think of like a cancer medicine, the earlier cancer medicines were broad cancer medicines, right? It was not targeted. That's what physical therapy is. You just do broad exercise. But then came the targeted uh, cancer therapy, right? You're actually targeting certain cells. This is exactly a targeted physical therapy. Think of that, right? So basically you're targeting a very small portion of the muscle to recruit which physical therapy cannot do. And that's how it treats uh, many conditions. So if you take migraine, for example, patients who are migraine, there are three muscles in the brain, uh, sorry, in the face that get tensed up, the frontalis muscle, the temporalis muscle, and the upper trapezius muscle. And that tension in the muscle creates anxiety in the body, and that anxiety kicks in pain. So that's a vicious cycle that one builds the other. 
So that's why people have hard attacks of migraines. You cannot cure migraine through jogging, but you can help the brain react differently to the migraine, right? So you put these sensors in these muscles and help relaxation exercises for the brain. And after eight weeks, brain now learns how to relax your body when you get a migraine attack. It works better than medication. So actually, American Migraine Foundation recommends this should be the first line of treatment for, for migraines, right? So... See, that's, that's incredible. It's it's almost like, you know, what you think about, you bring about in a way, right? I mean, you're literally using the power of like literally visualizing something to generate, you know, your mind to think a certain way, it sounds like, to help solve these health conditions. Yeah, yeah. You, the neuroplasticity of the brain is very lately on people are starting to understand how powerful of our brain is that it can recover itself, rewire itself. If, you know, there are famous examples of neuroplasticity curing things like phantom limb pain, right? When someone loses a leg and they still experience pain because the brain doesn't know that you lost a leg, right? The brain still thinks there's a leg. So you need to teach the brain, hey, we lost a leg. Stop bothering that leg. The leg is in the brain, but the leg is not physically there. So you teach the brain through that. That's how, I mean, there are studies being done on phantom limb pain. It's very similar to that. You teach the brain about its own muscle function where the circuitry is lost. So you actually rewire the whole circuit. Yeah. Wow. This is, this is fascinating, Siva. And, you know, I just, I just think about kind of like, again, seeing is believing, right? I mean, so what are you seeing right now from some of your testing that you're doing with your product and technology in the field right now? Yeah, so I will start with stroke. Uh, stroke is where stroke, and we focus on multiple indications. We have been even cleared. The science is cleared by FDA for about seven indications, right? Stroke, migraine, tension-type headaches, incontinence, chronic constipation, and even to some extent, uh, neuro rehab in multiple cirrhosis. Uh, and a few other conditions. I forgot a few others that I that, that doesn't come to my mind. Uh, but we are kind of focusing on only we can just boil the ocean with this. So we are focusing on some of the things that I'll tell you about stroke. So stroke, we are very specifically targeting patients after they complete the rehab uh, because physical therapy should be a first line of treatment uh, for anything. So you go to physical therapy, you know, we normally target patients who have facial paralysis, right? They, you know, they have Bell's palsy, they call it a facial paralysis or dystonia of the hand, you know, they can't hold a pen. And a fantastic example, I will tell you, there's a professor at UCLA had a stroke during COVID and he's a professor of filmmaking, right? A lot of Hollywood celebrities are his students and then he teaches filmmaking. He had a stroke during COVID, he had the best rehab at UCLA. Again, came out of the rehab, he lost the ability to write, right? You know, think about it, a professor not able to write on a board. So he, they reached out to us. We treated him from Boston remotely. Uh, and during COVID, the telemedicine rules were pretty pretty easy. So he can treat from any state. Now it's changing. Uh, so we treated him from Boston. And he actually made a full recovery. So he was able to open his hands, right? Mm -hmm. And now go back. To, he thought he thought he'll never go back to work. And he just cried, you know. And so he said, his life was like, we gave his, gave his life back. You know, the, the professor is now teaching at UCLA. So these are some like anecdotal examples, but clinically we have shown this is superior to regular rehabilitation when it comes to post-stroke. And same with chronic low back pain. Our study at Brigham's and Women showed that this is superior to opioids in treating chronic low back pain. Um, so that, that's some fantastic results we have. 
and we just published a migraine result that's just peer reviewed and really good results. So yeah. Wow. That's that's great to hear about the results. And I and I guess that feedback as well, you know, that's something that you know, we're all so passionate about the, the impact for patients. And so when you're getting those sort of results, it's really exciting. I wonder what, what's the feedback been like from care professionals who are getting to use and work with this type of technology? I mean, that's the most encouraging thing, Richard, how physicians have embraced this. So if you talk to physicians who went to med school in the 70s, they would say, I know, I know about the science. I'm so glad you guys have brought it back to life because and there have been situations where our patients told us this is the only thing that worked. We were talking to a, a physician at Yale recently, and he said there was a 63-year-old migraine patient. Migraine normally stops around at the age of 55, but sometimes you get up to 63. And she came back and mentioned that she had gone through the entire life cycle of every drug that came to migraine, right? Now there is CGRP inhibitors as a new class of drugs. She said, there was a treatment back when, back then they put these sensors on and gave me relaxation exercises. It's called electromography by feedback. I think that's the best treatment I've received so far. It's the only thing that worked for me. And, and when she heard, when this doctor heard about that, us bringing this treatment, she was so glad. So physicians, uh, this science is not new to them, right? And it's, it's an old science that we are bringing a new modality uh, into it. Uh, so they are happy about it. But the young physicians... Uh, they have, they're not learning this in school. So because it's kind of went away, now we have re-educated them. Luckily, there are still physicians who know about the science, so there's some education. But the fact that this is non-invasive, the fact that there's nothing to lose, there's no side effects, you know, that's just encouraging. And in many cases, there are no other treatments, right? Think about a stroke recovery. What do, what do you, I mean, how many stroke patients do you see that with disability still? Why they haven't recovered? So there's no treatment. So we have meet, there's a lot of unmet need in this space. So, so that's, that's encouraging too. Yeah. And if I yeah, could absolutely. chime in real quick too, you know, Siva uh, and, and Richard, I just think it's fascinating, you know, with obviously the opioid crisis over the past, you know, decade or so. I mean, the fact that you could potentially, you know, provide a treatment option without any kind of drug or opioid is is remarkable. It's incredible. So, um, I mean, that's a big you know. area of focus for us, and we particularly focused on on opioids because if you look at the chronic low back pain patients, low back just to start with, you get a low back pain, you should first go to physical therapy, right? That's your first line of treatment. After that, what happens? They go into this crazy world of pain medicine where, depending on which doctor you go to, some of them put you on a on a surgery path, some of you put, put you on a neuromodulated path, then some patients get into opioids, right? In many cases, we are kind of coming in after physical therapy. We talk, try this and most, most likely you'll get better <laughs> and you don't need the other ones. Some patients still need surgery. I mean, there, there's some other mechanical issue that's going on in the body, but when they say chronic low back pain, there's, an, there's another name for it. It's called non-specific low back pain. Those are the patients who really go into opioid because there's no pathological reason they have pain. Your brain just reacting to the old injury that you had and opioid is not the way to suppress it. You need to just teach the brain <laughs> uh, to, uh, to work differently. So this is brilliant. So you've got huge unmet needs. You've got a solution with multiple applications. You've got a great feedback from patients and the care professionals. In terms of the go-to-market strategy, it sounds like you've got a really rounded 
you know, approach here. What about the geographies in terms of where you're taking this? Because I know you travel the world and you're speaking to a lot of people. Are you just targeting the US or are you looking in parallel with other countries? So welcome to the world of reimbursement, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that's what makes me travel around the world. So when we first came to the market, when we got cleared by the FTA, the FTA actually gave us a 510k exemption because this is much safer than anything out there. And they also gave us a breakthrough device designation for showing we are superior to opioid. None of these matters to insurance companies, right? Uh, insurance companies want uh, only they would cover if there is need. So we have, we were playing, uh, we we're working with the insurance companies. And then finally, we found out there are existing codes that was created in the 1980s or whatever for this treatment. So they don't cover the device. The device doesn't get paid for right? They pay only for the treatment. So how do you go to market if you only have a service code available? So we create our own comics. So we have got a license in Massachusetts now. We got a license in New York and New Jersey. We created what we call a vertically integrated play where we are treating patients uh, and we are billing the insurance companies. So at least people, get, people can use their insurance. Of course, we don't make a lot of money in this device yet, but it's getting paid, not like a lot of other things. Uh, so that's what led us to other markets because there are other markets who are willing to pay for this and especially UAE and India um, and they are mostly cash markets and they're willing to pay for it and they, we went to those markets for two reasons. One, we're getting generating revenue. The second reason, we're generating data which we can bring it back to blue crosses of the world and give it back to them and say, hey, here's real world data. Now, why don't you cover this? So that's our go-to-market right now, Richard. We are a vertically integrated play. We have started to sell the device now to health systems, educating them how to use it, just slowly starting. But right now, uh, basically, we are contracting with payers directly as a service provider, and we are giving the treatments. Yeah, And we have touched 25,000 patients, which is important. Yeah. Awesome. Kyle, well, I mean, I think we covered some great things on the reimbursement and the regulatory there. And it sounds like Siva and the team have got a really, you know, dynamic approach to making sure that they're taking this to market in a thoughtful way. Um, I think tapping into new markets is something we don't often hear about because everyone's very focused on, of course, just targeting the US because it's such a big market. So that's really exciting to hear how you're chasing these other international opportunities. Yeah, the main reason, Richard, you know, who is willing to pay for it? I'm sorry, Kyle. You're supposed no, you're good. Come on, take it away, Siva. No, the, the, I mean, this is an advice I'm going to tell other other medtech companies. Go wherever there is money ready to be paid for, right? We People are willing to pay for. Uh, there are markets that are, I mean, in India, for example, for incontinence treatment, the reimbursement that we're getting is two-thirds of what we get in the U.S. It's pretty good reimbursement, right? Uh, that, so why not focus on a market like that? And you're also generating good data. Make sure that you have a good... Uh, data capturing tool like an EHR system that is US compliant uh, because otherwise nobody will believe that you treated these patients <laughs> in other countries. And that's an important piece that you need to collect the data and data will, should be used here for reimbursement purposes because insurance companies want real world data. They they don't care much about your clinical studies. Yeah. You know, that's interesting, Siva. And, and I guess I'm trying to follow you here because I think this is such a kind of unique, like, go-to-market strategy and pathway that we don't typically hear when talking to other uh, medical device manufacturers or people bringing medical technologies to market. So, you know, I guess what is though, the, like what can patients expect? Because it sounds like there is going to be some sort of out-of-pocket investment. So is that is that a correct by saying that? 
So if they come to us through uh, our clinics that are existing clinics, all they have to pay is the copay that do they normally pay in a doctor's office, right? Um, so it's about eight sessions they have to come for a week period, Kyle. The rest of the days they're using the device at home. We don't charge anything for the patient to use the device at home. Uh, so margins are pretty low at this point because we are getting paid only for the service part of it, but it's fine, right? We are not, at least we are, we are not losing money, right? Uh, but the patients have to pay a copay. Uh, some, sometimes we have a way to uh, waive it depending on the laws of the land, laws of the states, because sometimes you have to collect the uh, copay. So not a lot of, uh, not a lot of out of pocket for patients. And the other thing, some of the employers have started to cover this. So we just signed our self-insured employer, a bunch of them in pipeline and Silicon Valley Employers Forum just uh, recognized us as an innovator in this space. So there are ways to get paid uh, even by uh, your own employer. So if there is an out-of-pocket cost, you can you can talk to the employer's benefits and they, they pay us too. So no, so majority of our patients use their insurance in these in these states, uh, Boston, like, Massachusetts, yeah, Massachusetts and New Jersey, yeah, other states. Okay. It's still not there. Yeah. Okay. That that's 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 really neat. And I guess like um, you know, you mentioned uh, I think you mentioned the number of maybe eight treatments or eight visits, uh, appointments and follow ups. Right. Um, can that be done? Can those appointments and follow ups be done virtually? All of them virtually, actually. Oh, perfect. So the Makes sense. If even some patients, hundred percent treatment is virtual. Right, uh, but some patients prefer to meet a meet a therapist at you know in person. So we ask them to come to the office for one time. Here's a kit. We'll show you, especially elderly patients who are not that tech savvy. Yeah. Uh, we kind of help them with the with the device. Then they take it home. But yes, the hundred percent of this treatment is virtual. Right, that's that's the nice thing about it. Yeah. How, how long is the treatment? So as I said, typically eight weeks, but they're meeting with the therapist physical therapist or a clinical psychologist or a social worker who that you have a nurse for 35 to 40 minutes for the session. So there are eight times they're meeting with a physical therapist or a clinical social worker or a psychologist, depending on the condition we are treating uh, for, for about 35 to 40 minutes, eight times over a period of eight weeks. But the rest of the days, we encourage them to practice this at home. Remember, this is neuroplasticity. You have to practice Without practice, the neuroplasticity doesn't kick in. So we nudge them, hey, you missed your session today. You have to practice at least 20 minutes a day. Okay, you missed it yesterday, but do it at least three times a week. So we have a nudging science team behind, which calls, texts the patient. With the, you know, there's a whole science behind it. You can't nudge a person too many times. They, they, they get angry. Uh, <laughs> so the eight-week is the treatment course. Sometimes it goes to 10, 10, 10, 10 weeks. They're meeting once a week with the provider. Rest of the days, they're using the kit at home. They're practicing it at home. And we have a support team to make sure they're practicing at home. That's a key piece of it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So it sounds like you're navigating what potentially could be a pretty big challenge around reimbursement pretty well. You're finding ways, you're finding partners. I wanted to come back, though, on something you mentioned at the beginning that was one of the major problems around just getting this technology to market. So, it, you know, it came from NYU. You know, what have you done to translate that technology? Because I'm sure this is a problem that a lot of entrepreneurs face for technology that is developed in an academic setting and now needs to move into a commercial setting. So how have you navigated that challenge? 
Yeah, yeah. So kudos to my co-founder and CEO. He's the guy who sat for almost 10 years doing this. I joined towards the end of the, when the product is almost ready. Um, so Dr. Bradney, it's, it's an interesting backstory to this. Dr. Joseph Bradney um, survived the Holocaust, came to the US from Germany, brought this fantastic science with him. And he met a gentleman named Gordon Silverman. Gordon Silverman is a cognitive neuroscientist and an engineer, rare combination, right? He's the guy who invented Easy Pass, you know, the mask, whatever that we are using now. So he's, he's first developed. So we named the company after them. Jogo stands for Joseph and Gordon, like just like, you know, Elon Musk gave Tesla the names so that we want to give this name. So they worked with IBM to build this machine, right? In, this, in the 70s, this is a massive machine sitting in the lab. And then they gave up on it, right? It worked. People came all from all over the world. They gave up on it. Sanjay, my co-founder, met them in 2010 when Dr. Bradney was almost 90 years old, right? Uh, and he worked with him. He said, can I take this technology? Then patents were all expired. He kind of rethought the whole thing into that small little sense that you're seeing in my, in my background screen, right? Can we bring the entire machine into this small sensor? Because his background was creating the microchip that we have in our credit card. That was his background. He worked at AT&T. <laughs> and so he brought his the knowledge. And that time, even the Apple iPhone was out. So the mobile operating systems were getting powerful. So he kind of took the entire software and put it into an app. And it worked for almost seven, eight years till we get a patent and took almost almost nine years for them to get to shrink this and bring it to what, what we currently have. So it's a lot of work, Richard. It does, you know. Um, and right now we are seeing you know, a lot of kudos to those guys. I came in towards the end. And, uh, so a lot of work has gone in. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are so many other technologies sitting in academic medical centers you know, to be tapped. <laughs> yeah, that's an amazing journey. And it's really cool how you've managed to, you know, build in the names of the people, the Jogo uh, into the you know the whole story of you know what you're trying to do and the yeah. brand it was originally right. called neurotherapeutics uh we renamed the company after these two gentlemen yeah these two researchers yeah awesome Kyle. well yeah i think like steve it's you know seems you're sailing through all these challenges very easily and i know it's it's not as easy oh. as it potentially you're making of course and, and again it's years in the making um but this is all leading to great things i'm sure Kyle. oh yeah absolutely it sounds like you probably have some uh, exciting milestones ahead, we would imagine. So I guess looking forward, you know, over the next maybe 6, 12, and 18 months, you know, what are you expecting from Jogo Health? And what do those milestones, critical milestones look like for your company in order to continue to uh, gain traction and, and grow? Yes. So we are currently in network with um, major insurance players in Massachusetts, New York, and New Jersey, right? And now starts the challenge of getting the reference from hospitals and doctors so you need to build a sales force you do very much like what a pharma company would do present the science the you know i'll tell you reference don't come naturally you have to talk to the physicians on a daily basis so the milestone is to this year hit a, a certain amount of revenue uh, which we will we are confident we will hit about three million dollars in revenue we are aiming for this year at least on, on the up, upside of things uh, from generating these, these referrals. So that's a major milestone for this next 12 months. Then also the next biggest milestone is signing up self-insured employers. So we just signed our first one, a couple of large ones are in the pipeline. That makes it easy for the margins are high when a 
self-insured payer is paying for it because they're paying also for the device. And it's a value-based contract, not a fee-for-service contract with a, with a self-insured employer. Interestingly, our first self-insured employer is a pharmaceutical company. They sign this up for their own employees. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. Uh, a pharma company aiming, picking up Jago. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, Steve, though. I'm glad you said that because I think what we're seeing too in like the medical device industry as a whole, um, which is really exciting to me, is that there's a lot of other technologies that are coming to market um, in the form of minimally invasive therapeutic energy-based devices um, that are providing treatments, right, that are kind of eliminating or mitigating the need for medication, right? So you're seeing all these pharma companies realize that. And I think it would almost be foolish of them to not, you know, participate on the other side of the device world, right? Um, I mean, it's your classic, if you fail to innovate and understand the future, well, then you could find yourself in a really tough position. So I, I I'm, it's it's great that you shared uh, that piece of knowledge. And I think it's, it's really... Um, it's very popular. I think we're seeing that across the industry as a whole. So, um, and, and, and I do want to touch on real quick as well with your future milestones. What about, you know, the other treatments too? I mean, you know, you've been talking a lot about stroke with obviously you mentioned the lower back pain and migraine and just everything else. I mean, is there right now, is this really truly just focused really on stroke patients or, or are you, are you kind of, Hey, whatever opportunities are out there within your areas of treatment, you know, you'll entertain and so we are a little tactical and and some in some way strategic about this, depending on where we are seeing the champions. Because end of the day, we need to get the referral card. Without that, it is a prescription thing. You cannot just get patients off from the road, right? Yeah. So what we are seeing in different markets in New York, we have a good collaboration with Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai and Will Cornell starting to send patients to us on the incontinent side post-prostatectomy, postpartum incontinence. So there are physicians who completely believe in this and say, hey, I will send all my patients. So our New York operations is mostly focused on pelvic floor, especially incontinence, postpartum and post-prostatectomy incontinence. Even Memorial Sloan Cancer Center sends us patients. So that's our New York. And again, you need to build a critical mass of pres prescriptions and to, to build it. In, in, in Massachusetts, luckily UMass, Worcester, <laughs> is a great support of all the physicians. They send us a lot of migraine patients. And interestingly, we treat a lot of migraine patients in, 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 in Massachusetts. And Beth Israel Leahy sends us, sorry, uh, uh, Brigham's and Women's Multiple Sources Center sends us MS patients, multiple MS patients. So, so we are kind of neurology focused in Massachusetts, urology focused in New York. And in New Jersey, it's mostly pain focused we get a lot of patients for migraine and low back pain in new jersey so we have been very tactical to find where we have the champions uh, of these physicians who are sending us then we are building this center of excellence in these three states and i know it's you know if you talk to a vc you'll say they, th they have theoretical models they'll say hey you need to focus on one condition it's not that easy <laughs> uh, you have to focus where your customers are willing to send you patients for basically our providers so that's what we are doing right now so the next biggest phase of a company in clinical development so mayo clinic made an investment in jago health recently so mayo made an investment they're very focused on movement disorders they want to work with tremors uh, especially functional tremors that's our next clinical milestone to get this clinically studied for uh, for um, 
for tremors. Then you're kicking off another trial at Brigham and Women's Hospital to show that this is Dr. Bernstein. She's the number one migraine researcher probably in the world. She thinks that Jago could reduce the cortisol, the actual chemical reaction, uh, can be measured after Jago treatment. So there's another study that they're, they're kicking off. So uh, those are our clinical next milestone. But if you ask me where we are focused, these three geographies, New York, Bo New York, Boston, Massachusetts, and New Jersey, three different indications. And we're building the uh, center of excellence for these three. Because, we you know, it's, it's, it, I love, I love that, Siva. I really appreciate too how you kind of, um, again, a lot of companies, hey, they want to focus on, you know, one specific treatment, right? And for you, it's like, hey, you know, honestly, it doesn't really matter. You have the ability to support, you know, a number of different treatments, and it's all about the need. Um, and, and kind of that almost goes back to, I think, what you were saying at the beginning of this podcast, and I'd love for you to kind of maybe elaborate a little bit more of this, but democratizing healthcare. Right. We're starting to see this. We're starting to hear this. It's come up in other interviews that we've had with other guests on the show. Uh, maybe elaborate a little bit more on kind of what that means, you know, uh, for the audience um, and, and how that that ties into kind of, again, connect the dots and tie it back to Jogo Health. Yes. Um, so if you look at what the science behind Jogo, the electromagnetic biofeedback, as I said, it's not a new science. It's a very, very old science in the 1970s. Still, there are large machines still exist inside some large academic medical centers. So let's say someone who had access to the top urologist could still force the doctor to get this treatment. So what we have done uh, is taking this existing well-studied science to the masses, democratize the whole thing, right? This can be done virtually again, right? Now I can treat a patient in the rural Massachusetts who has no time to travel to Brigham and Women's Hospital for eight to eight weeks, for eight weeks. Uh, and, and, and remember, even the home exercise cannot be done with the old machines. They still have to come to the clinic. So they basically have to be stationed in Massachusetts, probably paying $350 a hotel night <laughs> to, to, to come and sit here. We are now taking this to the rural Massachusetts, right? I mean, first of all, this treatment, although they existed, still they were not giving, but this treatment now, even though someone could have take, gotten the treatment at, at Brigham and Women's Hospital with these large, big machines. Now going, they can take it from home, right? That's the piece of democratizing. The second thing is um, reliance on medications, right? If, the, if you look at the rural populations, they are much closer to a pharmacy than a hospital, right? Uh, the, the access to a pharmacy is much easier. than uh, So medication has been uh, the, the go-to... <laughs> Uh, treatment for many of the rural population. Now, something like this couldn't reach in the past uh, a rural population. Think about the opioid belt, right? And we work closely uh, right now with, with the Ohio region, local hospital. And it's sad that they only have, only thing they have access is a pharmacy. So what would normally someone do? Painkiller, right? Uh, so where are these treatments? So we are kind of taking these yeah, so when, from day one, we thought, how can we serve someone in a rural population, including Africa, right? We were thinking all the time, how can we get this treatment to Africa? And how can someone from New York treat someone from Africa, right? Remotely, right? Uh, so that's basically our, 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 our mission for this, Kyle. Yeah. It's fantastic. You're making it possible for everyone. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, this is incredible. I mean, it's such a dynamic model, and I, and I think it fits so on point with this this big trend where we're seeing the hospital moving to at home 
you know, the number of programs has doubled in the last two or three years of the hospitals are looking to obviously move the point of care to the outpatient or to that home setting. So this is so exciting to see you bringing this type of technology as a solution that can fit into that trend. Um, you have covered so much here. I'm wondering as we sort of close out here, um, you know, what would be some advice you would give an entrepreneur who's just starting out on the journey and thinking about, you know, how do I get into developing a medical technology? Yeah, I think I was also naive in the beginning, Richard, about the reimbursement landscape of the United States, right? You develop a molecule, you're guaranteed you will get paid. But if you develop a medtech device, you're not guaranteed you'll get paid, right? The rules are different for molecules and medtech, right? Medtech, you, there are thousands of medical devices who doesn't get reimbursed, right? So think about your reimbursement strategy from day one, otherwise you'll run out of money by the time you finish your clinical trial and nobody wants to invest in you and find out the commercial strategy early on, right? Uh, for medical med tech, because that's a critical piece. And also focus on some markets that are cash, right? Um, and there are markets that are 100% cash. Uh, think of India, Indonesia, Africa, and they are willing to pay for these things, right? Um, so those are some areas to focus on. They generate the, the evidence, then come to the Blue Cross of the world and, and give them the data. So that's where I see a lot of med tech companies have fantastic clinical results, great technology. Then they stuck at the moment of commercialization because the law there are no laws that tell you that you developed a fantastic tech, you will get paid. Right? <laughs> but if you develop a molecule, you'll get paid automatically. So think commercial from day one is my, my advice. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is really solid advice. I mean, we just actually had a session yesterday with the group with Bill Reynolds from Argenta Advisors covering reimbursement. It's something we always like to have up top in the program because it's so fundamental to think about how will I get paid? You know, just getting that clinical evidence and getting the regulatory burden removed is only one step. It's so important to know that you tie that into your commercial strategy. So again, that's such great advice. Um, again, one of the things you mentioned, I'd love to sort of round out on is that you spoke about a little bit of the vision there and I wonder now if you look ahead and in five years time you know where do you see Jogo Health because that big ambition of democratizing health and all the applications you know again where would you like to see the company in five years time? So um, we want to we, we want to be a success story in medtech we want to go IPO right uh, so I'm aiming 2028 and we have all the basic fundamental building blocks to become a, a big company right? Because we have become vertically integrated. So uh, I look at companies like Sword Health, Hinge Health, who are like a small medical device, but mostly wrapped around services and they created this fantastic vertically integrated model. You know, Sword Health is valued, I think now $2 billion, bigger than some med tech companies. Hinge Health is valued at $8 billion, right? There is not, uh, not many pharma companies that have valued $8 billion. So if those companies, they create a technology and they create this vertically integrated model of service wrapped around, if they could be valued like that, I mean, I could easily, we could easily be valued because we have 21 indications. They only have musculoskeletal, right? So, I mean, they're ready to go up public this year, both those companies, right? They started out just like us. So I see myself, uh, I mean, we are going to be also be global as well, right? So we have, Fantastic. Uh, I, I have 51 countries who have reached out to us that they want a job. I mean, and I've, I've built companies before. The last thing you want is stretch yourself thin and you don't do anything well. But you, but you, there's a need there, Richard, right? So, uh, so 
I see myself in five years, we'll be a success story, very confident about it, uh, in creating this because of a business model, because this technology, anybody could have, you know, put their effort and could have created, but you need to innovate around the business model uh, and how to deliver this. Mm -hmm. And and we are not the first one. There are companies who have done it like Hinge and, and Swole. Uh, we created this fully integrated, vertically integrated business model. So, yeah, that is an awesome vision. And 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 again, I, I think you know the coverage you're getting to your point that you have this inbound from all these countries and you've been highlighted in some of the you know the best known papers as well recently. I, I think it sounds to like a really exciting opportunity. So I can only wish you well with that vision. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Yeah. Thank you. And and Siva, um, you know, obviously you've you've got some work ahead. Um, and you mentioned some of the needs. Um, one obviously being certain types of people and talent and maybe sales folks, um, to help you, uh, increase your, your market presence and, um, uh, develop more partnerships. Uh, so if I'm someone that may, might work in, you know, potentially selling, you know, a pharmaceutical product, you know, within those treatment areas that you've mentioned, you know, I might be interested in going to the device side, you know, and, and going to, to, you know, joining your team, how would people maybe get in touch with you? No matter who it is, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah. Great question, Kyle. And definitely we are looking for people. Uh, we are closing this round uh, of funding. So we always look for folks who come from pharma, right? Uh, pharma, med, med device, mostly pharma, because a business model is very much like pharma to go talk to doctors, present these studies and have them prescribe, right? Job. So mm -hmm. the a reason hires were from AstraZeneca. Uh, one, we just hired and you went to the University of, you know, UMass, uh, <laughs> not Massachusetts uh, neurology conference. And we hired a guy from another pharma company who was in the opposite booth. He was presenting some other drug. <laughs> We hired him, <laughs> he came and worked for us. Um, nice. You hire from pharma. Yeah. Um, where we really have need is pharma market access, folks who have access to insurance companies. So that's a big piece of our, our strategy to get this whole thing covered as a value-based or a higher reimbursement. So yeah, we always hire from the industry, uh, pharma. Then we're also looking for people who have access to uh, employee benefits. Uh, so because we're selling to HR as well as, as a solution. So there are three kinds of roles that we always have it open sales, you know, traditional pharma sales, market access, traditional pharma, pharma market access. And the third piece, which is not a pharma thing, is mostly benefit sale, where you're selling mm -hmm. to self-insured employers. Yeah. Great. Well, so how do they get in touch with you? Oh, they could, uh, there's jobs at jogohealth.com. <laughs> Perfect. Job. Awesome. So you're actively hiring. You're looking for folks. Uh, yes. Fantastic. Just uh, I'm sure uh, the um, the the uh, applications are going to be flying in after this episode, Ziva. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We definitely need people. And also we are looking for clinicians too. So if you if you are a physical therapist who want looking for a gig work uh, for evenings, you could apply if you are a clinical social worker looking for a gig gig work at, you know, because it's hard to find these folks. There's a shortage of staff. Uh, so anyone looking for gig work, uh, we, we welcome, uh, especially clinicians uh, looking for gig work.
Well, Kyle, I'm sure like the listeners, this has been truly inspirational and, you know, hearing the story, hearing the mission, the vision, um, we can't thank you enough, Siva, for joining us today. And, and again, we can only wish you well with everything you're doing at Jogo Health. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Richard. Kyle, as always, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in uh, to another episode of the MedTech Impact Podcast. Once again, Siva Nataraja of Jogo Health. So thank you. Um, and then until next time, I'm Kyle Cruz. And I'm Richard Beaglejohn. Keep innovating.